Morning, everyone. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26, and then uh, we'll go ahead and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very, very much that uh, we could sing, and uh, thank you for uh, Becky sharing her story. Definitely captivated all of our hearts. Uh, thank you for your incredible church, and uh, just that you had in your grand plan a family uh, that we could plug into, that could teach us about how to be like you, God, and that could meet our needs. Uh, thank you, God, for all the things you're doing in our lives, both the good things and the challenging things. Both have their place in teaching us to follow you. And God, I just pray that we could follow you uh, in a very powerful way, in a very sincere way, and that we could follow you till we breathe our last and see you face to face. Thank you for each person visiting here. Today, I pray they'd feel our love and our warmth and our embrace of just a genuineness and uh, that we're all sinners trying to make it uh, to heaven. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're visiting, uh, we're in a, a long series, eight part. Uh, today, I think it's part six called Follow. And, uh, you know, we live in such a consumer society that without trying, uh, a lot of us look at church as a movie. You know, in a movie, you come in, you get, I like movies, you get excited, you get the big tub of popcorn, if you like popcorn, the overpriced soda, and you sit down and you lean back and you take it in. And that's what a movie's for. It's not an interactive sport. Uh, you're not there to uh, get a lecture. Uh, you're not there to participate. You're there to be entertained. And without trying, as so many marketers are trying to win us over, I think that's what we can do with Jesus. Not just at church today. But we can look at Christianity of, as, what am I going to get out of it? What's it going to do for me? And I think there's a normal part to that at the beginning. In fact, when you look at Jesus' 12 apostles, when he called them, they all asked themselves, as you or I did, if you're a true Christian, well, what's this, how's this going to help me? How's this going to help my situation? What am I, how's this going to help my family? What's this going to do for me? Is this, I have an agenda of where I hope life would go. Are you going to help me get there? And that's kind of where we all start out. There's a normal part to that. But if we're going to really follow Jesus the way Jesus called people to follow, it has to grow from there. And uh, today we're going to study out somebody that uh, maybe you've heard a sermon on before. Uh, maybe you haven't, uh, but we're going to learn from Judas today. And uh, the sermon today is called, What I Want to Want what I want to want. And I think all of us can relate with that statement, even when it comes to maybe exercise. We see the image of who we want to be at our stage of life. We don't want to be 18 necessarily if we're older, but we go, that's where I want to be. Or we look at our financial situation and we go, okay, if I could spend less, be more disciplined, I want to want to be here. But the motivation to get from what you want to there is very, very challenging. And it's the same thing with Jesus. We're going to do a, a study on Judas. And we're going to look at uh, two verses or two sections of Scripture, Matthew 26 and 27. We're going to skip over to John 12 at one point because the same story is told twice and it gives us more clues. But I think it's an amazing story about us wrestling with our will, our agenda, and coordinating it with God's couple things to think about here as we study out Judas. You know, Judas, I believe, was picked for the same reason the other 11 guys were. He had a desire for God. He had a good reputation. He added something to the team. 
He got Jesus' attention. He wasn't brought into the cast of characters as, all right, we need a bad guy. Every movie needs a bad guy. You will make an incredible bad guy. And by the way, just to let you know from the beginning, you're going to mess it all up. Your name, no one will ever name their son after you or their daughter, Judessa, or something. Sorry, Dessa. Judessa, I said. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Bible says it would have been better if you were never born, and so on and so on. But every play needs a bad guy. Judas, you're the bad guy. That's not how it started. Judas started in the same pack, in the same lineup, as 11 other men with good hearts, sinful people, but wanting to change the world. But something happened along the way. And really, the other 11's hearts weren't much different than Judas's heart. It's just Judas took a hard right turn when the others turned it around. Matthew 26, Jesus had just finished doing a lesson, an object lesson, talked about different things that were important to his will. And it says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. So this story is going to be told kind of over a period of a couple days. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now imagine if you're his 12 followers, you're with this guy that can do the miracle worker. Nobody can touch him. Over and over it says they went after him and he just walked through the crowds and the crowds just moved. You're with this guy that's doing things, saying things, and accomplishing things that the world has never seen. And suddenly he says, by the way, you know, the Passover is coming, and they're excited about the Passover, big holiday for the Jews. And by the way, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be crucified. What would you be feeling and thinking about your agenda at that point? Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled. So this is Jesus talking with his guys. And then in another scene over here, the chief priests get together, and the elders of the people, and they assemble in the palace of the high priest, and they have a discussion. Caiaphas, the high priest, it says, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus during the festival secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So there's these different things happening in this play. Jesus has been talking about this crucifixion coming all along. The guys are, as you read in different gospels and as you know, Brian preached about last week, it perplexed them many times, the level of commitment that he called for. Sometimes they asked questions. Sometimes they argued with him. Other times they went, I don't know what he means. I don't know what, I don't want to know. Hopefully it's metaphoric and allegorical and let's just keep moving. But Jesus sets that forth saying, this is going to happen now in two days, 48 hours. And then in another scene over in this, the high priest place, they're having a little meeting saying, enough is enough. Our agenda, our will, we're going to put this guy to death. You know, this idea of following Jesus, you know, anything you do when you start it and, it, you're, and it's new, there's high motivation. Go into the gym January and February. Go back in March and April. Go look at the revenue lines of gym, uh, you know, corporations and see where most of their money comes from. It's December, January, February. 
I don't know the actual facts. Why? Because whenever you start out a new year, new something, new anything, motivation's high. Let's do this. I got the clothes now, and they match. I've got the hat. I even got a new water bottle. Let's do this. And the motivation's high. But as time goes on, you got to deal with you. And I think it's the same for Christianity. At first, it looks great. Wow, I get this, I get this, I get this. I don't want to say this, but he's almost like my genie. I just rub my Bible and he's going to do what I want him to do. And I think as we get older as Christians, we can feel like, hey, wait a second, God. I've done what you wanted. Why aren't you? You wouldn't say it. You just feel it. Why aren't you doing what I want? And this whole idea of the constant contest in our soul for our will versus God's will. Our agenda versus God's agenda. We love God's agenda if it lines up with ours. We love it if it lines up kind of with ours. But when it conflicts with ours, man, it's so hard. It was even hard for Jesus when you see him wrestling with his agenda versus what God wanted. See, let's talk about Judas here for a second. Judas knew if he rises to power, I rise to power. If he becomes the guy, I become the guy or one of the guys. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the guys who are always arguing over position, position on this earth, position in heaven, who's important, who's not. And when you look at Judas's character and do a study completely, he was constantly wrestling with that. But Judas, like the other guys, loved Jesus. They were grateful that they were chosen. They were grateful to be around such a powerful man. But they didn't, there were some things about Jesus that bugged Judas. And I don't think it was just Judas alone. But we'll talk about Judas today. I think it probably bugged the other guys too. Maybe it bugged the other Simon the Zealot when you look at his background. But these things bug Judas. One, Jesus went too slow. Why is he holding back? Why isn't he just taking charge? Two, Jesus doesn't hate the Romans. In fact, he's healed some of them. He's talking to them. He's even said, I didn't come here to be a king. He said, hey, Caesar, let him do his thing. We're doing our thing. You've got to hate the Romans if you're going to establish his kingdom. We want to be in power. Another thing he hated was Jesus ostracizing all the religious people constantly. You say, why would Judas hate that? Because Jesus, if we're going to be the establishment, we've got to have the temple with us. We've got to have the priests with us. Jesus, you know the Old Testament. That's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to proclaim the Messiah. The priest is to be involved. What are you doing? Always ostracizing the religious people and publicly humiliating me, humiliating them. For Jesus, why aren't we building a war chest? We got to gather money so that we can promote our campaign. And Jesus, finally, you're too passive. You're letting people off the hook all the time when you could very easily take charge. I've seen it. And so we see this scene where Jew, Judas sees Jesus, and it's, that's it, I'm done. I'm tired of this. And he takes the agenda into his own hands. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. And this was the last straw for Judas. This criticalness had been building up in his heart. His agenda was getting stronger Judas's, not Jesus. And he kind of felt at one point, enough is enough. 
You've crossed the line with me, Jesus. I'm going to help you out now. Look what happens. While Jesus was in Bethany, remember two days till the Passover, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Matthew 26, verse 7, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant, and they said, Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, this was embarrassing. This would be like you being over at someone's house and your friend pulls out this incredibly precious crystal that they're using for glasses, and you say out loud at the dinner party that you were invited to, seriously? This is the stuff from France, right? This is highly expensive. Did you know that the International Day of Giving came and went? And missions is coming up? Seriously, you spent this kind of money on that? To drink out of? To eat out of? I don't know. That's just concerning to me. I mean, I... So when you look at this passage, you go, wow, the disciples did this. But if you look over to John chapter 12, because the Bible says John was there too, and this story is recorded in John 12, uh, verse 4, same story. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So who was the one that objected? Judas. And you say, how could someone be, have the gall to speak up at a dinner party? Well, look whose party it was. It was Lazarus. It was Martha. It was Mary. It was someone they were familiar with, comfortable with, had known before. So they, he felt comfortable enough to just speak up. And he says, Judas said this, quote, verse 5, John 12. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he starts talking to the other guys. Bartholomew, can you believe this? Nathaniel, I mean, jeez. I'm just saying, I mean, Peter, you know, you know how much we want to help the poor. And he gets all the disciples riled up. And he says this, he did not say this because he cared about the poor. Look at his agenda. But because he was a thief, as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said, replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. And uh, if you head down to verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. Look at this prophecy. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That here we are, 2,000 plus years later, talking about this one act of faith, of sacrifice, of this woman saying, gosh, 
my agenda is to hold on to this because this is the most valuable thing I have. But the fact that I'm standing in front of the presence of the Messiah and I believe it and he's forgiving me, I just, I'm moved. I have to just do this. Little did she know the kind of impact this story would have so many years later. Now Judas, how did he do it? How did his heart get that hard? That here he is, six inches away. He had hugged Jesus. He had slept next to Jesus. He had shared meals with Jesus. He heard all the same sermons that all the other guys heard. He saw the miracles. He walked with them. He felt Jesus' love, his affection. He was cared for by Jesus. And to be so close to Jesus, and yet holding on to his agenda. What was his agenda? His personal agenda is, I want Jesus for my own ends. And I think that's something we all wrestle with. I want Jesus as a means to an end. I want him to do this for me. And it's not wrong to have desires, but it's when our desires don't align with God's desires, which happens a lot, and sometimes happens in a huge way. What do we do then? Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. And in this story, you see Jesus or Judas saying, that's enough. And we read verse 14. It says that he, then one of the 12, so he, sneak, he slips out, he goes to take care of his responsibilities, and he heads over. Remember that little scene that was happening at the high priest's home where they were meeting and trying to figure out, and they were setting their agenda? Now Judas's agenda, he's setting his agenda, and these two agendas start to meet together. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, Matthew 26, verse 14, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity of handing him over. Judas was like, that's it, I'm done. Jesus, you're dragging this thing out. What are you doing? I'm going to move this process along a little faster. I'm going to help get you in front of the chief priests. You're going to do your thing that you always do. You're going to show your power. You're going to take charge. And then we, together, will be in charge. People always ask, why did Judas do what he did? And as we see later in the story, I think he did what he did because he wanted to force his agenda upon Jesus to move things along, to put him in front of the high priest and to get Jesus to use his miraculous power to take control. Jesus had a different plan. God had a different plan. And what was Judas thinking? I'm going to hand him over? How can you hand over the son of God? I mean, think about it. Judas, you saw his power. You were there in the boat when he rebuked the weather. And all of us said together, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves submit to him. You were there when the guy in the temple was demon-possessed and he rebukes him and the spirits, the evil spirits submitted to his name. You were there when the boy from the widow of, the widow of Nain was coming out of the city and Jesus stopped the procession and the boy went from dead to sitting up. We all almost fell dead at that point. You were there at Lazarus' tomb. You were there when he put the mud on the guy's eyes. You were there, you were there, you were there. How is it that Judas felt, and I'm going to hand him over? 
that he had that kind of a power over God's will. You know, we can do the same thing with God. We can compartmentalize God. God, I want you big time. Help me here. But God, in this business deal, I'm all set. I'll call on you if I need you. God, when I head off on this vacation, you know. God, with this relationship, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, that I, you know, come on, God, I really. But when we need God, we call on him. We want his, our agenda to match with his agenda because it's our agenda. But other times we hand him over and we say, I don't want that. Judas thought he could force Jesus' hand. Sometimes we think we can force God's hand and God's agenda. Why would Judas do this? It wasn't happening fast enough for him. And he thought during the Passover, I'm going to help this thing go in a different direction. And Jesus, you're going to do what you've always done. You're going to take control. But you can't do that to God. And I just have this one point for you today. God's hand cannot be forced. And God's will cannot be thwarted. And there's a very inspirational side to that. And there's a very humbling, scary side to that. God's hand in your life and in my life cannot, will not, ever, ever, ever be forced. And God's will for our life can never be thwarted by anyone or anything or any situation. Even at the end of Job here on the screen, Job 42.2, the Bible never tells us completely why God allowed Job to go through he, what he went through. And Job never realized, God, why'd you do this? Why did you take me through this? This was brutal. But look what Job said at the end of his life, or at the end of the story. I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. See, God, his hand can't be thwarted, his forced, and his will cannot be thwarted. Move on to chapter 27. And we, we, we skip forward here, and things get out of hand. And when we force God's will, and we try to, his hand, his will, things get out of hand. Matthew 27, verse 1. So Jesus, Judas goes, he gets the 30 pieces of silver, He's greedy. He's excited. Hey, I'm going to make this happen. I know what Jesus is going to do. He's done it before. Here we go. He agrees with, he sets up a scheme. I'll meet him in the garden. I know where he prays. Make sure you get him. The problem is you guys always try to get him in the crowds. Let's get him in secret. Then uh, I'll go. I'll kiss him. Make sure you get the right guy. Okay, because this might be your only shot, fellas. Make sure you get the right guy. And he slips back into the group of the apostles. All along, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Even right there, we skip past the story, but even there, after he washed their feet, and he said, one of you is going to betray me. And he looked at each one of them, and they all said, one by one, individual admission, what? Surely not I, Lord. And then even Jesus said at that point, Judas, do what you're going to do. And the other apostles thought he meant, Hey, go take care of some of the finances. Go get some food. Go make some arrangements. Even at that point, Jesus in his love was like, 
<laughs> yeah, you. He could have humbled himself. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Their plans. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Judas thought the Jews were just going to handle it. Jesus is going to do his thing. They're going to see that he's really the Messiah. And then Judas is closer to power. And suddenly, Jesus is now handed over to the Romans. And it's out of the Jews' control. It's out of Judas's control. But it's never out of God's control. And he gets scared. And we can make decisions that God will allow us to make that we can't undo. He will forgive those decisions, but you can't undo. Once the train leaves the station, it's gone. And we've all made decisions like that. In fact, when they're processed spiritually, some of those decisions were what made us start seeking Jesus in the first place. But I think even as Christians, we can still make those decisions if we're not careful to try to force God's hand. And Judas now is in a panic. What is happening? My plan is coming apart. What's happening? And off Jesus gets led to the Romans. And the Bible says in verse 3 of Matthew 27, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied? That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use, I mean, talk about hypocrisy. Talk about hardness of heart. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. And then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. You see all the ways God's still moving his agenda behind the scenes and using a bad situation that God did not control. God didn't have Judas go betray him. Judas betrayed Jesus. And yet you still see God working in spite of our mistakes, and through and still working his agenda. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and he quotes a few passages from the Old Testament, and he says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord has commanded me. So the writer Matthew says, oh, by the way, if you don't believe me, go to the potter's field. It's there. It happened. He did it. And there's proof. See, God's hand cannot be forced. And this decision that Judas made, he couldn't live with. Judas looks back and he's overwhelmed. His Messiah is arrested. He didn't use his power the way he did every other time. He's going to be condemned. And so it looks so bleak, he kills himself. But then God works as he always does. See, God's plan was used through Judas, who just happened to be an accidental player in God's plan. When God has a plan and God has an agenda, we can't stop it. We choose to be part of it, or we choose to resist it, and we get set aside. But his plan and his agenda, you can't force it. You can't control it. You can't stop it. 
And God still worked in spite of Judas's decisions. And God's will and hope of salvation benefited us and was unfolded through the terrible decision that Judas had made. It was as if God's hand couldn't be forced and his will could not be thwarted. See, when we begin following Jesus, we have our agenda and our plan. And we say, God, I need you to help me. I have this thing. I have this will. I have this plan. And I hope you can help me out. But if we don't transition into, God, this is what I want, but what do you want? And God, I want to want what you want, but right now I'm not wanting it. If we don't mature past that, then we stay a consumer and we become irrelevant in God's plans. See, we can't have our way and his way all the time. And when we process this, this will take everything out of us. There's not a person here today that can get around this. Every one of us, either now or soon, is going to be forced to make decisions where we go, God, what I want, God, what you want. And we can justify and we can rationalize and we can say what we want, but we have to decide during these times of conflict. And it's in this conflict that you realize, wow, I'm actually a lot more like Judas than I realize. There's a little, pit of, little part of Judas in me as much as in anybody else. Versus, well, he was the guy that was condemned from the beginning. He was the chosen bad guy for the play. No, he was the guy, just like you and me, that couldn't reconcile God's plan with his plan. See, at this moment, when you're wrestling, you'll know your conscience will light up inside you. There'll start to be what the Bible says, a war in the soul, where there's a wrestling that takes place. God, am I going to do what you want? Am I going to seek what you want? Or am I going to do what I want? You know, I've been challenged a lot over the years. You say, you need it. Thank you. You do too. Maybe you just need some more, okay? I have gotten my share. And there's many times where I've left just like, oh, man. That was not fun. And I went back and I went, all right, what am I going to do? Well, here's what I'll do first. I'm not saying that's what you need to do, but this works for me. I'm going to write down everything that least was said so I can think, did I hear it right? And did I process it right? And so usually by number 25, I go, I'm starting to repeat myself. And I go, okay, I think that was everything that was said. And I've even went back and said, hey, is this everything that was said? Did I miss anything? And then I'll go and get the Bible out and start looking. God, what do you have to say about these things? Because my natural reaction is just to feel bad, get defensive, get angry, blame, pull back, have self-pity, and on and on and on. That's my natural reaction. But if I want to wrestle through God's will, I've got to make sure... God, is this your will? What do you say about it? I think I know what you say about it, but I want to listen more because I've missed a few scriptures over the years myself. And ones I forgot or have never seen, they just come alive and help me. Because I want to sync up my will with God's will. I want to wrestle and then obey. And at times when you're going through these things, you feel this sense of a moral imperative. God, I've got to have this girl because you know you know that you, it's not good for man to be alone. You even start quoting scriptures. And you know, God, 
that it's better to marry than burn with lust. And I don't want to be alone or burn with lust. And we can kind of start justifying. God, you know, if I do this, yes, I'll miss a lot of church. But the money I could give to you, God, you and me, we could partner. And, and it feels like at that moment, I can't. That this thing or things is so central to who I am that for me to give it up, there'd be a death. And then what? And that death takes place. I've told people this a lot. You know, before you get baptized, just like before you get married, you really think it through. And you count the cost. You go, okay, uh, is this just emotion or am I ready for like the distance, like the real deal seal? Like it's done no matter what. And then after you get baptized, you have to keep counting the cost. Not every day, every week, but where God goes, how about now? And you're like, oh, you try to play dumb a little bit. I don't know what you're talking about. I have to, I have to think about that a little bit. And yet in your heart, there's just, the lights are coming on going, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. I remember when I was studying the Bible and people were showing me scriptures. I'm like, I've never seen these before. Where, Luke 9's been here the whole time. And, and then it was like Charlie Brown. You know, they're talking and leading the study. And I'm just like, I got to give up this. That means no more of that. I got to tell her this. I can't do that. I mean, I'm already first study wrestling with my agenda versus God's agenda. They didn't have to explain it to me. I knew. And it can be so hard to walk away from what we think we have to have. The ideal do I stay? Do I move? Do I have this job or not that job? And I can't live without it. But at that moment, what you, when you say, what's happening to me? At that moment, you'll know. Am I a follower? Or do I just believe? As if there's a separation. See, it's in those moments you discover whose you really are. In those moments, you realize with the wrestling and with the struggle, I belong to him. I am no longer a consumer, but I'm a follower no matter what. And it's in those moments where there's a free fall. If anyone's ever went cliff jumping, I have, many of us have, bungee jumping. There's a moment where you, or some of you have jumped out of planes. There's a moment where you just go, well, here we go. And there's this pit in your stomach like, if this doesn't end well, there's no, I, I mean, it's not like I can go, grab my hand. It's, too, it's it. But that's real faith. That's when God becomes alive to us. And we say to ourselves, God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. This is what a Jesus follower wants. You know, uh, in the screen here, I have a, um, says, get me out of these doldrums. The doldrums, is a, it's, a, it's a figure of speech, but it's actually a place. It's near the equator. And it's a place where it's very hot, and the water is very still, and there's almost no wind ever. And so, for those that sailed today, or at one point in our uh, life history, everybody, there was only sailboats. For you to get stuck in the doldrums was rough. You could be there. It was a sailor's worst nightmare. You could be there for days or weeks just floating around, hoping and, and, and just hot, humid, and dying. And people would lose their mind there going, oh my gosh, I'm stuck here forever. And I think we can feel that sometimes with God. 
And instead, I think sometimes we've got to wait for the second win. All we can do, do a Bible study, just type in wait on Bible Gateway. And see how many times in the Psalms, how long, O Lord? How long must I wait? And wrestle with sorrow in my heart every day. Psalm 13, 2. And many others. How long? How long? Sometimes all we can do is wait for the second win. We just have to hang on. Other times, instead of just sitting there and saying, it's so hot, nobody's going to help me, we need to lower the sails and break out the oars. And start rowing, even though it seems like such a far way to go. And see what God does to get us out of the doldrums. See, how would I know which it would be? I don't know. I just know God will make it clear. And it's so easy for us to quit, to tap out, to still come to church, but there's no passion. There's no affection. There's no sense of enthusiasm, God within, anymore for God. And it's in those moments we've got to pray. God, I want to be like those people that I've seen fight in their marriage and pull through. I want to be like those people that fell into major sin and they didn't let go. They fought their way back. I'm not like that. I see the effects of that, but I want to be like that. Give me the courage. Give me the strength to fight like that. I don't know, God, if I can do it. But I hope that I could, and I want to want what you want. I'm just not there yet. What did the man say when his son was demon-possessed and the apostles couldn't help him? Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There's just a lot in there of that as well. And we need to be real with God to want what God wants. And it can be so hard, but we can get through it. You know, the temptation is just to say it's too hard to quit, and to give up, numb out, ignore. But instead, we need to pray. Proverbs 21, verse 29 and 30 says, A wicked man puts up a bold front, puffs his chest out. But an upright man gives thought to his ways. I ask you today, give thought to your ways. Because there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. God's hand, no matter where we're at, what season of life, his agenda is going to win out with or without us. And God's hand can't be forced and his will cannot be thwarted. Just like that cartoon of that guy by himself rolling the boulder up the hill, it says this isn't working. What's going to happen soon? You know exactly what's going to happen soon. And I think we've got to get real with God and say, God, to, under, to be honest with you, I don't want to move. I don't want to break up with him or her. I don't want to leave that job. I don't want to do that deal. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to commit. I don't really want to hear your will, but I know it, and I'm afraid to hear it because it's going to hurt. But I want to want what you want me to want. And we need to be that honest with God. We need to stay there and pause long enough to let God work supernaturally. Here's a few practicals as we close out. One, Be willing to ask yourself the tough questions and let others ask them of you too. The Bible says the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters and a man of understanding draws them out. Sometimes we are that man of understanding drawing out our own heart. And other times we cannot see our own heart without the help of another godly man or woman. And I'm not saying they're always right, but if they're aiming in the right direction, there's morsels, gems of truth 
And if you're not willing to ask yourself deeper questions, the tough questions, then how do you know you're following God's will? How do you know your agenda's lined up with him? Two, believe God will give you the motivation only when you surrender. A lot of people say, once I believe, then I'll obey. Once I see it's going to work out for me, oh, then you got all of me. God doesn't work that way. God says, believe and obey whether it works out for you or not. Because I am God. Number three, decide to look and listen to God's will and discover your will for his life. You know, there's a couple that, uh, that passed, uh, passed away, but the longest engaged couple in history. They were in Mexico City. Uh, they were engaged in 1909 and got uh, married in 1969. 60, uh, 1902, they got engaged and when they were 15 years old and they got married at 82. 67 years of procrastination. June of 1969, they got married. I don't know all the reasons why, but some of us, we come to church and we go, I'm going to want what God wants soon. If I just come long enough, it'll just happen. I'm not really choosing to follow and obey and do what I know I need to do, but I hope if I just sit here, it'll just kind of happen. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Glad you're here. Keep coming. But it doesn't work that way till you get, grab the stick and start moving it yourself. Till you get in the action seat. And some of us, we're engaged, but we're not acting forward. And I just want you to think about these few things here as we close out. Jesus didn't stop Judas from doing what Judas Judas intended to do. And Judas never stopped Jesus from doing what Jesus intended to do. Everything can be forgiven, but a lot of things can't be undone. Once the train leaves the station, it doesn't come back. And our Heavenly Father loves us so much, has given us free will, that He will not stop you from going against His agenda. He loves you so much He'll go, I tried, I tried, I tried, but at the end of the day, you're going to do what you're going to do, and I'm going to still have to do what I'm going to do because I'm God. And my agenda and my will can't be thwarted or stopped. And if you were to talk Judas today, it should scare our hands open to God. If you were to ask Judas today, Judas, what do you think? He would say, his prayers today would be, blessed is the one that chooses to do God's will rather than try to impose their will on God. Blessed is the one when there's a butting of heads, they bow out and give in to God. Blessed is the one when they're stuck or hurt or faithless, they don't try to impose their will at that fork in the road. Blessed is the one who chooses to do God's will. See, at the end of the day, no matter how smart you are, how educated you are, how quick on your feet to think, how much Bible you know or don't know, how good your life's going, how healthy you are, you cannot ever, ever, ever force God's will or thwart his agenda. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he is God and we are not. And he reserves the right to say no. And when we look back on these situations that at the time feel like, no, I can't. We'll look back and go, oh my gosh, can you believe I almost did? This little itty bitty thing that meant so much to me then means nothing to me now. And me as just an insignificant, you know, not even seven feet tall. There's no one that's seven feet tall. I don't think in here, maybe there's a couple. I'm not even seven feet tall. And yet I get to be in God's cosmic plan for eternity. God loves me that much to think I almost missed it. Let me just close with this quote. Somebody asked William Booth, that's the guy that founded the Salvation Army. One of the, Dr. Chapman asked William Booth 
as he was an elderly man, hey, can you tell me the secret of your great life for God and man? Booth humbly replied this as an elderly man, since the first day God put the poor of London on my heart, he has had all there was of William Booth. What do we need to do? We need to follow. 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 Why? Because God can't be forced his hand in any way and his will and his agenda can never be thwarted. So we need to follow. Amen.